Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start. If you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm here with Oliver Bryant, or Ollie Bryant. Hi, Ollie. Hi, guys. Can you tell the audience who you are and what you do? I'm Ollie Bryant, and I race GT sports cars, uh, modern and historic, and have done for many years now. Have you done that for... How did you get into cars and racing and that sort of thing? Well, it's in the blood, really. My dad used to race quite a lot in the 80s, 70s and 80s, and then... He stopped, uh, you know, sort of late eighties in the recession, you know, and have kids and, and as people do. And then, uh, he got back into it a bit during the nineties. He raced, uh, Daytona 24 hour and Zebra 12 hour. Oh, nice. Racing in the US, which was really cool. What sort of things was he racing in? Um, American stuff. So one year he raced a stock car, literally like a NASCAR oh, that wow. they just converted and put some lights on it and, it and it did Daytona. And then the other year was a, a car that you may have seen actually, um, in uh, Endurance Lacey Legends, which is um, the Cannibal, Chevy Cannibal. It's, it's oh, yes. Yeah, with the roof cut off. And you probably saw it at Paul Ricard <laughs> last it, year. It's like half a car. It just doesn't even look like a real car. Yeah, actually, it was the, the only open-top world sports car at the time. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a cool thing. So, yeah, he, he raced that. So I grew up with him sort of away doing that sort of stuff. And, uh, and then, yeah, I got into racing when I was 16. We, we bought an MGB, and I started in uh, – MG Car Club sort of historic series. Mm. James Cottingham, he was doing it as well at the same time. We started together in that first year. And then Rob Huff was doing it as well, although he was in a different class. And then he obviously went on to his to his touring car career straight after. So um it was a great learning learning craft because you've you've got a low power car with skinny historic tires and you've got to learn how to drive it properly. And then and as you move up through the ranks, you're driving stuff with more power and more grip. So you just have to adapt. But uh, it's it's a great way to learn. Were they quite reliable at the time, the MGB, MGBs? Uh, they were. I mean, ours were sort of the FIA spec cars, so they were all to the historic spec with historic engine and correct ignition systems exactly as they were in the day. So 
you had to keep on top of them. But um, no, they were pretty good, really, and in- incredibly good around the corners. I mean, very different to a to a road MGB, I'd have thought. You know, in yeah. terms of how they were set up and the power they delivered, and you know, a bit like you know, race historic nine eleven, like I do. You know, a race prepared one of those versus a road car. Yeah. yeah, they're both great things, but they're totally different in terms of how tight they are and how 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 set up they are for the track. So, I know it was great and a and a fantastic way to start with really close competitive racing. And you know, but I, I'm I'm glad I've done bigger races and longer distance stuff since then because you know I remember we did a race one year at Cabwell Park and 15 minute race and and the faster class cars which were MG GTV8s you know on big fat slicks yeah. so they'd lap us three times so we'd, we'd be up in. <laughs> Cabal Park for a whole weekend for sort of 11 minutes of running and then of course you've taken three days out of your life to go and do it and uh, so I'm glad now that I'm doing races which are you know, bigger bigger events and longer races and you get a lot more seat time but um, no it's a great way to start and you know met some good good friends and contacts along the way yeah 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 so then so you've done you've sort of throughout time you've done a bit of racing or and then a lot of racing at what point in time did it start to become like a job well, I started obviously in the when I started in the MG. It was just you know I was at school at the time and uh, yeah. I was doing that championship. And I managed to that my headmaster was actually a fan. He actually had an MGB, which was quite useful. So I managed to um, <laughs> negotiate the ability to park in the staff car park with my Citroen C5 Estate car with my MGB on the back. So when lectures nice. were finished, I could uh, well when class was finished, I could uh, you know drive off to Donington or Snetterton or, or wherever. And not have to go home and load up first. So, um, you know, I, I was doing that, you know, just for fun. And I uh, started to share some of my dad's cars, like the Morgan Plus 8 and, and the Cobra, obviously, in that sort of era. Mm. And then, yeah, I got into GT racing. And 2004 was my first GT race, you know, in a, in a contemporary car at the time. What was that? And uh, that was actually a, um, it was in Bahrain. It was the GT Festival. And it was in a Diablo so oh. I basically went from an MGB to a Diablo, which was nice, which was quite a step up, you know, first time on slicks, first time, obviously on a modern F1 circuit. And, uh, I actually shared with Christophe Bouchou, who's quite a famous professional French driver. You know, he won Le Mans with Peugeot, you know, he's a really experienced nice. guy. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he was my teammate and it came about <laughs> because his regular teammate that weekend got ill, basically he was under the weather and I'd gone out there with my license and helmet in the hope that I'd be able to get a drive in something. And it was looking pretty non-promising sort of come Thursday evening and of course their weekends as you know you know they finish on the Saturday so everything happens a day earlier yeah yeah the guy got ill and I definitely had nothing to do with it but I uh, <laughs> I took the uh, took his took his seat basically and, and drove the Lambo and we came sixth in the final it was it was GT2 at the time so yeah, yeah it was it was a really cool experience and then Keith Arlers who's a sort of quite well-known historic racer has got lots of big Morgan collection he was racing there in his Aero 8 Morgan with Aaron Scott, who's a, a quick driver who's done Le Mans and GT racing for a long time as well. And uh, Keith was looking for a teammate for the following year. So he saw how I went in the Lambo. And then um, I basically got to drive with him in, in 2005 and 2006 in British GT. Um, was that in, which a, was fantastic. in, a, in a Morgan? Yeah, in the Aero 8. Effectively a GT3 Aero 8 back it's then. So, it's um, so funny when you see seeing the Morgans versus the other cars they just look hilarious they just don't look like proper cars for some reason yeah i mean you know they're, they're a very quirky thing the aero 8 i mean the chassis is actually quite advanced on them it's proper you know sort of box aluminium chassis all resin glued together you know with sort of the orange glue oozing out of all the seams like you'd see on an aston yeah, or yeah. vantage or something and yeah. um you know the bmw v8 and uh you know it had an extract gearbox and you know it was a, it was a quick car we we, we had um 
several class wins in 05 and we came yeah third in the championship in 05 and 06 with it um which was really good you know given we were we had a, a transit van and a sort of trailer with a side awning <laughs> and we were against sort of Ferrari and Porsche trucks. And so that was great learning in that environment and sort of being in the, you know, the underdogs against some of those big manufacturers. So is it quite, was, was it quite difficult running the cars? Did you have a quite, you had a quite small team then? Of people? Yeah, very small. Yeah. I mean, uh, Keith, he had a great guy called Billy Bellinger who sort of grew up around the older Morgans. And then he was sort of handed the task of running this at the time, modern, modern GT car. Um, you know, and it was modern, albeit it still looks like a Morgan. It's quite yeah. old school. It's cross-eyed at the front. You know, the headlights kind of squint, yeah. squint at each other. But it's, um, you know, it was a good car. And and the whole of GT3 formula at that time was all based on power to weight. So the idea was that, you know, your 996 Porsche was, I don't know, 12 or 1300 kilos and had 380 horsepower. We had less power than that. We probably had 330, 340, but we were lighter than them. And yeah. then you had the 360 GT3 car, which was basically a challenge car with a, with a wing and a front splitter. And it was in the early days of GT3, which has obviously gone on to be, you know, basically like a worldwide formula for GT racing. But no, it was, it, it literally was Billy Bellinger and his dad who helped us out. So it was just, it was the two guys plus myself and Keith. So obviously, uh, unlike most drivers, you know, between sessions, we were helping take the, take, take the car apart and clean up the yeah. wheels. And, you know, it was, so it was, it was a good, it was a great grounding and way to, to get into that GT world and, you know, race against some great drivers who I've gone on to race against throughout yeah. GT racing and you know over the years which is which is really cool have you had any like hilarious repairs obviously having stuff damage is annoying but like things you've had to do to get a car back on track um back then i mean to be you know the reason we did so well in that series was the, the morgan was pretty reliable and billy did a, a great job yeah. with it we had a couple of annoying things that happened during testing you know like the diff broke once so it locked the rear wheels up at donnington so we had to <laughs> go and rescue it and you couldn't tow it back so we had to put it up yeah. on jacks you know that sort of stuff but there wasn't anything with the morgan really that springs to mind i mean i've raced a lot of old cars over the years so they've obviously had their fair share of reliability issues but mm. um no fortunately nothing nothing too drastic when it comes to uh to things like that so during this time you've been racing some modern gt cars did you have you carried on do you still race GT cars occasionally? Yeah, the last the last um, couple of seasons, I haven't raced anything modern. I did the last modern race I did. I did Silverstone 24 Hour at the beginning of 2018, yeah, which is when they ran it. I think it was the February or March date, which I don't think they'll repeat because the weather was just Awful. so grim. It was a lot of darkness and <laughs> and uh, you know pretty difficult with the stoppage in the night because of fog and things. That was in a just a little two three five i, you know, the BMW. Yeah, yeah, yeah in that sort of touring class, the cup class. And that was good. Did it with some friends, the guys I'd coached previously. Yeah. And my dad joined us as well on that. And it was a good crowd. And we, yeah, we came second in class. We had a wheel bearing issue that cost us half an hour or something, but I do love the endurance stuff. And then prior to that, uh, my big modern race before that was, um, I did Le Mans 24 hour in 2017 with, um, with Beechton AMR. So um, in the GTE AM class and we finished, yeah, we finished fourth, which was, which is a mega result. I mean, uh, we were actually battling for second, so fourth was a bit of sort of bit of pill for us at the end. We had a an issue with one cylinder towards the end of the race, so for the last four hours of the race, we had a misfire, yeah. which was gutting at the time because we were sort of we were swapping brutal. positions all race long with with the four eight eights that came first, second, and third in the end. Yeah, and uh, we just slipped off um, off the podium, and we finished seventy six seconds behind third after after twenty four hours. So um, that was close. Um, how how does incredible race racing? Like a Le Mans 24 hour versus a normal endurance six hour 
three hour, two hour compare or other 24 hour races? Um, I mean, the event itself is like nothing else in terms of the size of it, the scale of it, the number of people that are there, the amount of time you're there as well. I mean, you're obviously there two weeks earlier for the, for the test, which yeah. is their other opportunity to shut the town down and, and go through the two test days, which happens on the Sunday and Monday, normally the last weekend of May. Um, but then when you get to the event yourself, you know, you're there for, again, you get there on the Saturday and you don't leave till the following Monday. So it's a, it's a serious, you know, you're there for down there for nine, 10 days again. And um, just the scale of the whole thing with the number of spectators and the, the number of manufacturers and the campsites, you know, it is, it is incredible. You know, I've not done Nürburgring 24 hour. I've done Spa 24 hour, mm. three times, Silverstone 24 hour, many times, and then other classic 24 hour races. But no, it, it is an incredible event and, you know, something I'd love to do again. I, I did it in, I've done it twice now, 2016 in a Corvette and then 2017 in the Aston. And, um, you know, I, I would love to go back. I wanted yeah. to go a lot sooner, you know, when I, my fir- after my first year's full year's GT racing yeah. back in 2005, you know, as a 19 year old, I was like, it's all about Le Mans. I've got to be push, there push, next push. year. And, and I was there every year with friends and you know, going down there and camping. And, and then so many of my, you know, sort of counterparts I was racing with or against ended up doing it. And when you're going there and not racing, it just becomes so frustrating. <laughs> you say to yourself, look, I'm not going to go back now until I'm behind the wheel. Yeah. Um, and the only times I've been back is when I've been either racing in the, in the legend support race or, classic Le Mans, you know, and, uh, actually had a chance to drive, but, uh, to go as a, to go as a punter for me now, having done it would be quite a hard pill to swallow really until I'm, until <laughs> I'm of sort of retirement age and then yeah, I'll you're not happily, ready to happily go up. back. Not ready to hang up your hat yet. You... No, def- definitely not. So no, definitely unfinished business there. And, um, you know, an honor to do it and, you know, great, great teams. I was with both years and, um, to finish twice, you know, that in itself is a big achievement. You know, I was a bit disgruntled yeah. when, you know, when you, you're close to a good result and you don't get it. And then, you know, chatting to Sam Hancock, who obviously a fantastic driver and does a lot of commentary now at Le Mans, you know, he, he, he's done a thing, I think four or five, maybe even six times in, you know, LMP1 with the Aston and LMP2 and Porsches and, yeah. and he's never had a finish. And then when you suddenly realise that, you know, all the opportunities you can have to, to do well at that race. Yeah. But nowadays, to be fair, the cars are a lot more reliable. So the chance but, of finishing is a lot higher. But don't they also just... Because they're so reliable now, people drive flat out, flat out the whole time. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is flat out. It is literally a sprint. You know, you you think twice about a silly move that in a sprint race, you'd, you'd probably give it a go. And with curbs and things, you're a bit more cautious. But your general attitude to risk is the same as in any race. You know, you are, in terms of pace, you are flat out. Now, the risk element, I say, suppose is the only element you do, you do alter slightly. And you can't get fueling wrong there. You know, at Le Mans, yeah. <laughs> if, if you miss your in-lap, you know, they run them so tight on strategy to, to eke out the number of stints that, yeah, if you miss your in, you won't make it round. Um, yeah. But not at a sensible pace. You know, you could, you could wind the map right down and creep round, but the time you'd lose is, is huge. So, no, it is fantastic. Whereas, yeah, when I used to go and watch in sort of, you know, 2004, 2005, in LMP2, for example, back then, if you finished, you were on the podium. I mean, simple yeah. as that. You know, so you just, <laughs> if, if you were in a, if it was a year where the engines were a bit fickle, you would just, drive to finish and you, you, you get on the podium. So, um, mm. you know, it's definitely changed since that and the, and the quality of the drivers now and the, you know, the amateur drivers that generally speaking fund most of these GT AM cars, you know, they take it so seriously at that level and they go through all the right training and they have several years building up to it. You know, you used yeah. to get people that would do a year's GT racing and then they buy a car and get a team to run it for the middle of the month. That doesn't happen now. You know, most of these people have won championships or had a huge amount of experience themselves before they go and undertake that race. Because the costs are just 
so crazy in terms of tires, fuel, insurance, number what of personnel. The, what is the cost of a, a GT? Like, let's say Spa 24 and then, or Silverstone 24, and then compare that to Le Mans. Are they yeah. significantly well, I mean, everything, different? Obviously the cars are different. Crazy. You know, your GTE at Le Mans, whereas yeah. GT3 is the top class at, um, at Spa and Nürburgring, for example. GT3 cars are generally a lot more cost-effective. The last few years, I've, I've, and I've not been... I've not driven one or raced one for a full season since 2015, and they were already yeah. pretty pretty big numbers then. Um, but allegedly, they've gone up even more. But no, yeah. to give you an example, I mean, I think nowadays it's it's somewhere between probably 250 and 300,000 euros to run a GT3 car at Spa 24 Hour. Okay, um, yeah. It was, it was sort of 160 when we were doing it in the yeah. Z4 back in 2015. But yeah, I believe now in GTE, to run a GTE car at sort of factory level, it's like a million euros to run the car for one event. And, you know, and that doesn't include buying it or buying yeah. the equipment. Or, so that's and just the costs of doing the event. How much is a GTE you know, car? Your insurance. Six, seven hundred? How much are they? Yeah. I think they're more than that now. I think that used to be the sort of figure. But, but I hear now that current GTE car, be it Ferrari, I think it's probably the most expensive. They're sort of, I think, one and a half million euros now with all the bits you need, with all the endurance packs and the wheels and all the special stuff you yeah, need for yeah. the long. So yeah, they're just huge numbers, but what you're getting nowadays, which especially with the success of, you know, the sort of historic modern series that are coming out, you know, such as the one that yeah. runs with Peter Auto that, that Jarrah organizes um, and the Masters one is you're getting people that are appreciating these modern GT cars now. And they're actually, you're getting a lot of people who are forward purchasing GT cars. So you actually have a position now where you could say, I'm going to go and run, you know, an ELMS or a wet program to include Le Mans over the next three or four years would you fund the car? So would you, you know, the invoice from Ferrari yeah. will come to you. It'll be your car from day one. We'll agree to lease it from you. We'll run it for that three or four years. We'll put it back to as new spec at the end and you'll get a car that's hopefully done X, Y, and Z. Done Le Mans and whatever. And yeah. if you happen to get the car that's the Le Mans winner, then actually fast forward 20 years, you've probably done right. But it's a, yeah. it's a bit of a brave shout in the current world. It is. And especially with the prices of these cars, like, it's just madness. And then you compare... Let's say, because LMP2 must cost pretty much the same as GTE. Yeah, I think, I think LMP2 was obviously traditionally a lot more cost-effective than LMP1 because that was the, the sort of marching ground of the manufacturers, you know, with where budget really wasn't a problem. It's obviously mm. becoming more of a problem now, sort of certainly publicly. But LMP2, I think, used to be fairly cost-effective. Um, it depended entirely on sort of the, the chassis and the engine package you had. Touchwood over the last few years, certainly they've been incredibly reliable, these LMP2 cars nowadays. But I'd say in terms of, they're probably similar cost-wise. GT yeah. and LMP2 is probably fairly similar. But how much uh, quicker is an LMP2 than a GTE car? Quite a bit, well, isn't now, it? Now, probably 15, 20 seconds around Le Mans, yeah. I'd say. Maybe a little bit more. I mean, the GT cars now are dipping into the 40s. So they're doing sort of, uh, I guess it'd be, yeah, three, 348, maybe 347, yeah. something like that now. And an LMP2 car is probably in the 30s now, low 30s. Yeah. And the P1s are now, well, the hybrid cars are below below 320 now. I mean, 320s used to be an insane time around Le Mans. And I think, was it a couple of years ago, Kobayashi did that lap, it was 314 or something? Yeah. In that perfect conditions <laughs> that day. Um, and it was just an amazing lap. But, you know, it is, it is incredible to see those things. And it'll be sad when they, uh, when they stop running because they are the absolute pinnacle of, of technology. Yeah, they are. What do you think? What would you like to see going forward? At, let's say, you know, WC, GTE. No, I think it's quite important to keep that link to the road car. You know, that's why 
I love GT cars. I mean, I wouldn't turn down a drive at Le Mans in, in a prototype. It's not <laughs> something I've got experience with. You know, it's, yeah. there's a lot more aero and you'd need to go and sort of to get prepared for that. You probably need to go and get a radical and do, you know, a season's radical racing really to, to be fully trusting in the, in the extra grip you've got. It's yeah. easy for the guys that come from single seaters because they just step into it and they're, you know, they're going down in downforce rather than up yeah. like, I would, like I would be. But um, yeah, I think GT cars is, is, would be my preference just because you've got that synergy with the road cars and going to Le Mans over the years as a spectator and seeing, you know, the RSRs and the Ferraris and the Corvettes and the Astons racing. Yeah. Those have always been the great, the great battles. Multi-class racing, it, you know, is incredible to see, but the, the GT battles are always incredible. You know, you watch Le Mans now, nowadays and um hopefully we'll all be tuning in for real in september for the for the race this year but um you know when you see 10 gt cars line of stern all the different makes nose to tail yeah. for, for 24 hours with all the different sort of performance characteristics coming out some being quicker on the straights and some better in the turns you know it's, it's a cool thing to see it's definitely if, if i'm watching that that sort of sort of race it's the gt cars that i i appreciate the crazy fast stuff just for what they are. But yeah, like to see the Porsche line up with the Ferrari and all this stuff, that's what gets you going. But I do, I think that I heard the other day it was, I, I don't know whether it was, it was, was real or not. They were, it was trying to get rid of or merge GT3 and GTE into one yeah, class. I've heard, I've heard something about that in the past. I mean, difficulty with that is gt3 isn't 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 built to a set of regulations as such you the manufacturer puts their car forward and then balance and performance adjusts uh, okay. the cars accordingly so if, if aston come out with a car with a particularly big engine that's really fast you know they will they will then the balance of performance or bop is its nickname they will adjust things accordingly so they'll give the car an engine restrictor or some extra weight or a ride height penalty yeah. to kind of balance the cars out and that generally does work very well in gt3 the same thing does apply in GTE, but but the GTE rules are are stricter, and you have to build the car to a much stricter set of regulations. I think in terms of relation to the road car and also the engine spec, and as a result, they're you know, you're, they're a finely a more finely tuned, highly stressed vehicle. Basically, they've got a yeah. lot more air, they've got a lot more um, mechanical grip in a GTE car, whereas GT3, you know, is a bit more basic. Floor isn't quite as sophisticated. They've got huge you know, aero anyway, they've got massive wings yeah. and large diffusers and things, but um, it's, uh, yeah, so they're higher aero, less mechanical grip. Is that the main GT3 difference car. when you drive, if you drive a GTE car versus a GT3 car? The main difference to get used to is uh, there's no ABS in a GTE car. Okay. Um, yeah. And although that doesn't sound like that big a deal, obviously all the historic cars are race, none of them have got ABS, but yeah. when you go from a GT3 car where I've had, you know, 10 years of driving GT3 cars most weekends and you, you basically have to hit the brake pedal as hard as you can. And, you know, you'll get, you'll get into the ABS and then you can adjust accordingly, but you basically don't have to fear locking up. You can sort of, which is why they're so am friendly for for bringing the bronze or gentleman drivers along with you. They, you know, if you tell them brake there and sort of aim somewhere near the apex, (laughs) it will work and the car will get there. You try that in a GTE car, you'll just you'll just lock up and you'll be you'll be straight off. So yeah. so taking the step back from GT three up, I suppose to GTE, but also back in terms of technology to GTE was a big shock for me when I when I jumped in the Corvette because yeah. it felt like a GT three car, you know, with the paddle shift gearbox and yeah. I felt the brake pedal felt the same initially on the initial hit, but then it, the car just filled up with smoke. So I knew. Oh, hang on. <laughs> 
must have locked up here. And of course, this is, you know, on your outlap at Le Mans and you, you, know, you don't want to get anything wrong. So um, <laughs> that took a bit of adjusting. And then you, you really have to train your brain that you've got to, you can have that massive initial hit on the pedal, but you have to then get bleed out of the pressure so quickly. Otherwise, you will lock up. Um, they do all have locking lights now, which, you know, is, is moved into things like Carrera Cup, but there's also no no ABS on the 991. And yeah. in that, again, you, you've got locking lights and you actually know which corner of the car it is as well because okay. you, you can't always feel it through power steering and things. Yeah. Um, so you can come out the pressure or straighten your steering wheel to just kind of put that wheel back on the ground. So that's helpful. But um, yeah, that's probably the biggest difference I'd say between GT3 and GTE is um, the lack of ABS on a GTE car and more mechanical grip. So in the slower speed corners, you've got a lot more grip on a GTE car than you have on GT3. Mm. Yeah, they, they're just badass. I, I love GTE cars. I think... Yeah, I, I wish they had a bit more horsepower, though. Yeah, well, they're—I mean, they're just obviously from a spectator point of view. Yeah, I mean, they're obviously—I think because they are quite slippery, the GTE cars, you know, because they're a lot of the seasons do focus around Le Mans. They've got very efficient aero and they're very, very good yeah. at high speed. I think if they allow them to have 650 horsepower like a GT3 car does, you know, you'd—you um, you'd, know, they'd be too fast for the LMP2s and the LMP3s. Yeah. So the LMP1s that are trying to come past them, so. Um, you know, they're still quick, you know, they're still a quicker car over a lap than a GT3 car, but there's, there's not much in it. You know, they are yeah. very, very close. When you think of the cost difference between, between them, yeah. you know, it, it probably takes a lot of persuading for, for a guy racing GT3 to make the switch, you know, because he's going to think I'm spending double the money and I'm not going. Going like quicker. two seconds faster. <laughs> yeah. The, um, have you seen that series? What is it? It's, it's another, it's another SRO one. With the GT2 cars? Oh, okay. Like, it was like yeah, the GT2 that... RS. Yeah, I've seen, I saw some thing. linked about it. I saw a couple of them. I saw Audi Festival Speed last year. There was an Audi yeah. one there that I saw. And um, yeah, yeah I, that, think... I don't know if that's a new, is that a sprint series? I'm not exactly I think sure it's a sprint series and with the idea of being GT3 pace, but not GT3 aero. So oh, okay. more horsepower, less aero. Okay. Um, to make to make it easier for drivers to just you know you've got overtake on the straights yeah less yeah. into the corners that sort of situation yeah that, yeah, that could be um you know they've got to be a bit careful you know you, at the end of the day you've got the same number of sort of jet drivers out there that are, are you know buying these cars and owning these cars and you know spending the limited time they have away from work to race these things so you've got to be a bit careful you don't dilute the dilute the number of things they can do well, yeah you know, there's so many series nowadays you know in, in modern and historic motorsport that you know that that's that's some of the issues you're getting now you know you've only got so many weekends in a year and uh you know people's time is d- divided up quite preciously and you know, they're being pulled mm. in all sorts of directions uh, yeah you've got to make sure there's not too many grids a big grid yeah exactly you just want a big full grid if, yeah of one thing rather than like five difference so whilst you've been doing all this modern gt car racing you've done a lot of historic racing yeah yeah i have i mean i uh as I said, initially, my roots, I suppose, were in historics, starting with the MG and then sort of alongside the GT racing I was doing, uh, I was racing. My dad's got an old plus eight Morgan that he used to race in the mm. 70s and 80s. At the time, there was a series called Heritage Grand Touring Cars that was televised and it actually followed British Touring Cars and British GT as a support race. So it was quite good when I was racing the Aero 8 with Keith that my dad would be there anyway to support me and we'd have the Morgan with us. And of course I'd race in the support race as well. So oh, awesome. I was getting a lot of seat time, a lot of track time basically, which over the years has 
has massively helped the fact that I've, I've been in things a lot. So I, I sort of always, it always keeps me, keeps me fairly sharp, which is good. You know, at the end of the day, you know, you're driving to the limit of the grip the car's got, whether it's on slicks with huge wings or on a tiny historic cross ply, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. you're driving to the limits of the grip, you know, like, like when you put someone in a go-kart, you know, they, you soon find the limit when you see them backwards in the gravel, you know? Yeah. So you, you just drive to the limit you've got. So it doesn't really matter what speed you're doing. Um, you know, it's a weird, uh, way of describing it, but that is kind of how it's like, you know, they're all fundamentally the same. Yeah. It's an efficient way of getting them around the lap. That's the quickest way possible. So you just apply the same kind of technique to, to everything really. Yeah. When I'm watching different, I've seen different people do different styles of laps. Let's say in the the two liter series, which you've been racing in for ages, there's been there's you've posted quite a lot of videos, and it's normally like a pole lap with Ollie, hooning his two <laughs> well, liter around. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, fingers crossed. But generally, I would say you look pretty smooth most of the time. I would say it's like from a just watching, and then you could compare this, and you could see someone going pretty fast, but like all over the shop in terms of slip angles yeah. in, in the, in the two liter cars, I guess different cars you can allow different types, but is there one way is smooth, just faster, always faster or where's the, there's definitely the a balance in a car like the two liter, the Porsche is that we're on an Avon, which is actually quite a good tire. Um, so you've got quite a lot of grip. If you go really sideways, the car's not actually got that much power. You know, they're under 200 horsepower and they're over a thousand kilos. I think mm. 1040 is the, is the minimum weight. So the power to weight, you know, it's just fairly decent, you know, if, you know they're, they're, they're pretty swift, but you, um, yeah, there is a limit basically, you know, if you get too out of shape, you basically haven't got the power to deal with it. You know, you've got, you'll be massively sideways sort of on the lock stops. And at the end of the day, when you hit the loud pedal, you've only got a certain amount of shove. <laughs> so it's not yeah. going to necessarily correct you. And you've done a, a much longer line around that corner. You're all crossed up, all out of shape, scrubbing speed off effectively. And that yeah. was something I learned when, when I started in the MGB, you know, when you don't have much power, you know, 150 horsepower in a MGB and the car's pretty heavy, you've got to sort of be as smooth as you can. And that was where I learned to try and be smooth. I mean, there are people that drive the 911s totally different to me and they just back the thing in everywhere and just yeah. full throttle before the apex completely sideways. And yeah, I'd say over a lap, there's probably not much in it, but yeah. you know, you try and do that for 90 minutes without, <laughs> without your pace dropping off. And it's just not, it's just not possible. I mean, Pascal yeah. Pandelar, who's a um, Dutch driver, that's really, really quick in those Porsches that I've, I've seen I've, races I've, for years. Yeah. I mean, there's some great onboards of him over the years, you know, sort of backing cars in at Eau Rouge and, you know, really, really cool. Amazing to watch, very flamboyant. And, uh, you know, he's quick. And to be fair, he's very, very quick through Eau Rouge because he's just so brave. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. You know, how out of shape he is. He just keeps his foot in. Um, but, you know, ultimately the car, the tires are only going to last a certain number of laps driving it like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I generally a little bit smoother. I mean, you, you can get pretty out of shape with them, but there is a very fine line in the 911. It's such a lovely balance. You know, it's very easy to overstep that mark mm. and be very sideways very quickly. You know, that's also our car is set up. It's quite sharp. It's quite knife edgy like that. It's not yeah. the ideal setup for, every driver. Some people would find it a bit too racy, basically. They'd prefer it a bit softer, a bit more forgiving. But myself and Andrew who drive that, you know, we're both pretty experienced in, in them and other cars that are pretty hairy, basically. Yeah. So we're, um, you know, we can, we can kind of collect it all up on most occasions and it's, it's okay. But uh, <laughs> no, they, are, they are great fun. So the 2 Cup is one of those series that I've seen and I see you often at the Peter Auto events and you're always racing generally with Historica. 
it looks like a very fun grid to be in. Um, just like a ton of old Porsches. How do the, those cars compare to, let's say someone's driven an old road 911. How does that compare to, let's say, a 2-litre 65 race car? Well, the initial, I mean, the historical car and, and a lot of the ones I've driven are are done to a lovely spec. So, you know, they've got the full salt and pepper carpet sets in them and, you know, they've got the right dash, they've got all the video gauges. And I've also driven ones that are completely stripped out with, you know, modern sort of race gauges in them. And so it depends which one you drive, I think. But um, in terms of the handling, you know, they're obviously much different than the road car would be. They'd be a bit uncomfy on the road. You know, they've obviously got quite big anti-roll bars on them and the, and the torsion bars are stiff. You know, the engines are tuned for sort of peak power on a race circuit. So they're a bit lumpy down low and they're a bit, they get a bit choked up in the paddock, yeah. et cetera. So in terms of their drivability, they're, they're still very drivable. But yeah, the road car, you definitely notice it, you know, it'd be a bit, certainly a bit sloppier and nowhere near as sharp, but they've definitely mm. got that inherent 911 feel, you know, the, the intake noise from the engine and the gearbox, obviously being a dog leg first in those cars, you know, they, they're, they're a lovely old thing to drive. And, um, you know, I'd say, yeah, compared to a road car, they're obviously got more power. They're a bit lighter, not loads lighter because with that minimum weight, you can still have full trim. You can still have two seats. Obviously you don't have your okay, rear seats yeah. anymore and you've got a cage, which adds weight. So you, you know, they're probably not that much lighter than a road car, but you know, the gear ratios are all finely tuned to, you know, what you're doing and, uh, yeah, the motors, you know, fully race tuned motor effectively. So they're all tightly policed. Uh, the series has been really good at that. They've had well, engine sealing, I think as of this year, but they've making sure everyone's been building engines with the correct valve sizes and everyone's got a pattern exhaust this year, which will hopefully stop some of the issues we had last year where the exhaust regs changed and people were trying to make their own version of it. Now they've just said it's this part number, fit that exhaust, and then everyone's in the same boat, which is definitely yeah, the way to go. Funny, otherwise, yeah. otherwise people, it's just a spending war trying to who can who can come up with the best exhaust. Yeah, yeah I so, remember hearing yeah. someone was moaning about that, and, and rightly so, that like a particular car had had five different exhausts or something. Yeah, you know, just developing, developing, developing. So, what sort of in terms of the grid, ignoring the drivers? What's the difference between the sort of slowest car and the fastest car? Or you, I guess you can't do that. It depends, really. I mean, there's some cars that are sort of a bit worn out. You know, the owners had them for 20 years or whatever, and they, they yeah. use it for tour auto. They use it for rally events. You know, it's a softer car generally. Um, they've not done a lot of testing. You know, they are driver of an ability that just goes there to have a great time. And they're not that fussed about how they do. They just want to go to a lovely track, see their friends and have a good result. And as a result, they might yeah. be driving around 10 or 15 seconds a lap slow around someone like Spa. That doesn't mean the yeah. car couldn't do the time the front running cars could do. Um, you know, it'd probably be a couple of seconds off because it's not the same level of prep, but you know, they're all yeah. fairly similar at the end of the day, which, which is what makes the racing so good. You know, 43 yeah, cars yeah. that we had in that, in that first race at Spa, which was incredible sight to see. <laughs> has it stayed, has it stayed as popular? It seems to be. Yeah, very, I mean, this popular. year, obviously, this year's a bit up in the air. You know, people's other commitments are elsewhere, and some people obviously won't necessarily come and support the rounds this year because of difficulties with traveling internationally yeah. and concerns about quarantine and hotels, etc. But um, I think the grid, the initial signs speaking to the organizers was that the grid was going to be really good this year. Um, you know, we should have started off with Paul Ricard in April and then Spa in May and then Dijon a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, those rounds have gone, but, but Paul Ricard's been rescheduled for July and then we should have Monza in September mm. and then uh, Estoril in October. So 
if it ends up being three rounds, that'll be great. It'll be the same as it was in the first year of the championship. It, it was three rounds. Yeah. Um, you know, that'll be enough. I think, you know, if it was any less than that, it would, wouldn't make much of a series of it, but I think with three, it'll be, it'll be okay. And, uh, yeah, it's well yeah. promoted. And it is great. If you could only go to one of the European tracks to race, which would it be? Uh, Spa. Just, uh, you know, it's never, never a difficult question that for me. It's, uh, I've raced there so many times over the years. I can't you know, even think of the number of laps I must have done around there, but, uh, it's just an amazing circuit. You know, great part of the country to be in, you know, it's, it's good little restaurants tucked away over there and, you know, the, the beer, beer is good over there as well. You know, good beer, good yeah. chips and mayo. They like all that. But so no, it's just a great track. Fantastic. You know, one of the iconic circuits and obviously it changed a lot since the early days, but the original circuit is still there and you can drive around it. And, uh, in fact, when you do the, the fun cup, the 25 hour in the, uh, VW fun cup, the sort of one make series. Have you, have you done that? Yeah, many times actually. It's that's a great race as well. But um, when you do that race, the formation lap at the start is a full lap of the old circuit. Okay. So, so the whole grid of 160 of these quirky-looking BW Beetles, uh, you go and do a full lap of the circuit, and then you come in at yeah. Stavolo, go through Bonchemont, and then you start the you start the race. Oh, that's cool. So, so that's quite cool. But it is just such an incredible circuit. You know? mm. What? Are you, so you you've driven a bunch of classic cars raced a bunch of historic stuff what's what been the most memorable and sort of why uh t70 load of t70 that i race is is an awesome thing you know 1969 it's a world uh well world sports car it's, it still runs occasionally we don't get out that often but we do mm. the faa historic sports cars with it um which is a really competitive series we've had a good success with it over the years and that's an amazing thing to drive you know it is very quick you know, it's um, you know, like two minutes, 28 round spa, which on treaded historic tires is, that's quick. You know, is, is really fast. That's really you know, quick. It's, you know, 35 seconds a lap faster than the two liter car, for example, you know, yeah. than the Porsche. So, you know, it's a, it's an amazing thing. You know, it's an 800 kilos, 500 horsepower, tire, rear tires are 18 inches wide. I mean, it's, it's very, very cool. Um, so that's, that's amazing. I've really enjoyed that. The Cobra that I raced, AC Cobra, um, that's yeah. a really famous car. I've raced that a lot over the years. Spa Six Hour, we've done many times with that. Gent Drivers, which is now you know the Masters um, GT, raced it there, and then obviously lots of races at Goodwood with it over the years um, of mixed success. Not come away with the win yet, unfortunately, but we've um, we've certainly been up the front for for many years. Had some great battles with that, and we uh, hope to hope to be back at Revival soon with it. And um, you know, try and finally get, get that win because that's been uh, on the to-do list for a long time. Yeah. With something like the Cobra, which just from watching them, it seems like they have tons of grunt and then just try and make it around the corners and then get back on the gas again and just Yeah, they're, get well, on it. it's just very, very basic. You know, if you, if you see a Cobra with with the body off or the engine out and, you, and you know, it's, it's just a ladder chassis, so it's two thick steel tubes next to each other mm. with a transverse leaf spring front and rear like you'd have on a cart you know, from the 18th yeah. century and a Ford V8, you know, that, and a lightweight aluminium body. That is it. It's so, they're so simple. Mm. So you don't have any of the, you know, the double coil over dampers you get on an E-type or inboard discs or any of that tricks. You don't have any of that. So they are, yeah, it, you know, you want to try and, with the Cobra, you want to try and make the lap as many straight lines as possible uh, <laughs> and then sort of try and deal with the rest when you get there. But uh, no, it, it is hairy. Um, you know, I've had a lot of good race with it over the years and, you know, ours is, 
you know, well-developed in terms of, you know, we've run it for so many years and it's yeah. raced since day one. It, you know, it ran at Goodwood in 64. So it's a, it's a famous car, you know, and it has raced its whole life. So that's what's nice about driving that. And it is a very special thing. But yeah, as you say, it is, it is a hairy thing to drive and kind of very different to, to an E-Type or Ferraris from that era, which were a bit more sophisticated, I'd say, back then. But yeah. now that Ford engines have been developed over the years to, to produce more power and be a lot more reliable than they were in, in period, you know, they're, they're, they're a quick thing. You know, you can win a lot of things with a Cobra in, in historics. Yeah. If, 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 someone's not, if someone's not driven an old car, let's say someone's only driven modern vehicles, full stop, how would you explain the difference between driving something like the Cobra to, you know, your normal hatchback? <laughs> what <are> some, <laughs> well, yeah, what sort of things you have to do differently? Or... A huge, huge variation, but um, yeah, it's just the whole experience. I mean, you know, the power you've got, the, the relative lightness of it. You know, the Cobra is down at nine hundred kilos, which is oh wow, uh, you know, probably half a ton less than a hatchback nowadays. Yeah, um, and you've probably got four times the horsepower of a hatchback. So, <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, the, the acceleration you know is phenomenal. You know, I drive things that are quicker than that so of course when i get in that that's not the first thing that, yeah, yeah. that jumps out at me but um no the experience is amazing you've got the, the carburetors right in front of you you know with just a thin bit of aluminium in the screen so you've got all that noise right there mm. transmission obviously runs right past you with just a bit of carpet over it so it's you know you get all that experience and you're on you know a, a cross ply historic tire which is you know it's as close to zero grip as you could have you know <laughs> without them being flat you know, they, there's, there's so little grip. You, you just can't believe how little grip there is on, on those tires. And yeah, it's a real balancing art between, as you say, going, going two sideways and, and scrubbing the speed off. Yeah. They, they're just an awesome thing to drive. The, the brakes are actually pretty good. And because the car's not that heavy, it, it does stop quite well. Yeah. But just, just the whole experience of driving it is just a, you know, really exciting thing to drive. And there's never a moment in it where you sort of think, Oh, I wish I was doing something else. You know, it's, it's, it is incredibly exciting. And I think that's, that's what they mustn't lose with, you know, these modern GT cars, you know, with a lot of the cars now downsizing engine capacities and adding turbos yeah. and you're losing all the noise and the noise, you know, as any F1 fan will notice over the last few years, when you lose the noise, you certainly lose a lot of the excitement instantly. Yeah. All these, so many of the, the new GT cars are all like turbo V8s that don't sound that good. They make like a noise, but they don't, howl or anything yeah it's like not that. a nice you know, noise like either. You know, it's a very Lambos. harsh noise you know you know a v8 or a v6 with a turbo and then a side exhaust you know you're hearing three cylinders out of one side so you know even even when you know the new rsr now which i actually thought was turboed well, apparently it's not actually turboed it's just the exhaust yeah, it sounds weird so it's, it's three cylinders per side out of side pipes so uh, okay it's just, it just sounds so weird um yes yeah, so you don't get the full you're not Harmony getting that howling six, you know, yeah. and likewise the new Aston, you know, it's got the Merck based engine with the twin turbos. And again, that's got a side pipe each side. So you're hearing a four cylinder turbo go past rather than the rumble of a, <laughs> yeah. of a V8, which is a, which is a shame. And then obviously the new Corvette again, that's, I've not seen that yet. We were obviously all due to see that over here at Le Mans this year, but they I think they've, they've pulled it from this year's event. But um, again, that's now, that's much, now the mid engine car with a, with a V8. I wonder how much that plays into people people's choice of what car they choose to drive in let's say go gt racing with because yeah everyone probably has their favorite manufacturer like if i was going to go gt racing i'd want to be with porsche but they also happen to make great race cars but like if you used the old astons the old corvettes always sounded amazing new ones 
Not so much. We might be like, oh, I want to drive the Lambo because it sounds insane. Like, <laughs> do you think that's a big factor in p- people choosing it? Or It might be. It's probably more to do with their affinity with the brand. And, you know, if they grew up saying, you know, when I can do it, I want to race a Ferrari at Le Mans. You know, that'll be yeah. their decision, whether or not the Ferrari sounds good or not. That'll still be their goal. Um, but yeah, the noise, you know, certainly I think a lot of GT racing is about how cool the cars are. And, you know, it's why, you know, things like the Z4 was when we raced that it was, it was a bit of a, sometimes a bit of a tricky sell with sponsors because at the end of the day, it was a BMW Z4 and <laughs> yeah. they could sponsor a Lamborghini, you know, or a Ferrari or a Porsche. And, you know, it is a different, very different brand, but obviously there is a nice bit of motorsport heritage with BMW, which was nice. And, you know, it was a yeah. great car and it wasn't, you know, when someone saw it and realized how amazing it looked and how good it sounded, suddenly the sort of stigma associated with the Z4 as, you know, a hairdresser's car didn't really happen. You know, <laughs> happen, when someone yeah. came and saw that with the V8 and how awesome it sounded and that rear wing and those diffusers and it was a you know, really like a cool wheel, car. You know, it was a really cool car. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If some if, if someone wants to get not wants to get into racing because that's a stupid question. Everyone always says this, like, "Oh, what should I do if I want to get into racing?" It's like, "Well, go and find a series and do it." But <laughs> yeah, but like, if you were pointing someone in a direction for, let's say, some historic racing, would you point someone and they wanted to get into it and they've, let's say, start off with a small budget and then maybe in ten years' time they've got a massive budget or whatever? But where would you point someone? What cars? What series? What sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, I get asked this a lot because I. I do quite a lot of driver coaching. So a lot of people that mm. I start off with are just getting into the sport and they, you know, may have a certain budget at that stage and they're sort of winding down, you know, they might be, their five to 10 year goal might be that they're going to sell their business and then they're going to buy a load of cars and yeah. they've kind of got big plans to get into it. And, um, you know, the, the, the thing to be a bit cautious of, of course, is if you want to do the big events and go to the great circuits, the cost to be there and the cost in terms of time and funds to, to be at those events is very similar, whether you're in a, you know, a Cobra, a Ferrari, or an MGB. You know, yeah. your running costs for the car are a little different, but you've still got travel, fuel, tires, all that side of it. So yeah. you don't want to go down the sort of false economy route where you say, right, well, I'll start off with this car to end up at that car. But, you know, some of your some of your fixed costs are as much. So yeah. I think it just depends what car they dream of racing and you know, there'll be someone that loves touring car racing. So, you know, they should get a historic mini or something like that, you know, where, you know, I believe the budgets are fairly sensible. Of course, you know, there's so much development and so much tuning in those motors nowadays to get the cars really, you know, on a knife edge at the front, you've got to um, be a bit careful. It doesn't end up being a spending war, like a lot of those uh, sort of touring car series become, yeah. but certainly something, you know, I'd happily recommend someone to go and get an MGB or a Lotus Elite or something sort of something small powered where you've got to learn how to drive first. You wouldn't want to jump in something with huge power. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And um, in a position where you could get yourself in trouble early on and have a, you know, an accident. Because at the end of the day, those old cars aren't particularly safe. So you've got to, uh, you've got to factor that into it. And, uh, you know, another, something like the Caterham Academy, again, is a great, a great thing to do because you, yeah. you, know, you get your first year's racing and, and your license test and all that included as, as buying the car. So that's a good series to do. And I know a few people that have done that over the years. Yeah. Yeah, it looks like a good one, that one. Your point about the running costs being very similar is, I think, it's something that a lot of people miss. Like I, I've raced a bunch of different cars in different things over different weekends, but the support costs have generally been very similar, yeah. pretty much. Yeah, they so will like, be in terms of yeah, travel, hotels, a day yeah. rate for the guys that are spannering the cars. You know, that's all fairly similar. So at the end of the day, you've got to, you've got to be a bit, you know, a bit mindful of that. Uh, obviously, you know, a, a car with a DFE engine is obviously got very, very limited lifing and very expensive rebuild costs. So your yeah. your costs per kilometre or cost per hour on a car like that are obviously a lot higher. But again, your other costs, as you say, your fixed costs for that event, you know, your entries, travel, fuel, that sort of stuff's probably pretty similar, whether you're in a Mini or a Formula One car. So you've got to be mindful yeah. of that when making those decisions and, and, and choose something, you know, which kind of, yeah, what you don't want to do is commit to doing something and then sort of run out of steam half through the year. You know, you, especially when you're learning, you want to try and have as much fun as you can and do the best events that you can do. And you know, obviously, yeah. endurance racing is good as well. Some of the historic endurance stuff because you can you can obviously share the costs with other drivers, which is which is nice. And often the ownership as well. There's a lot of people that they share the ownership of a car together, and you know it helps when every invoice that comes through is divided in half. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can definitely feel for that one, having had a very big accident recently and it was split between five people rather than one. I was like, yeah. Oh yeah. Well that, that, I'm, yeah, <laughs> I'm okay with that. <laughs> um, if, so you do some coaching. Yeah. What's the sort of big hitters in terms of things that to help people with their driving? Did you see? Yeah. Well I coach like nowadays, I don't actually do any in car anymore when I'm, when I'm sat mm. next to the, the driver that I'm coaching, I do everything. Generally the people I work with, most of them aren't complete novices. A lot of them have raced and they, you know, they're spending a load of money on the car and they can't work out why they're not getting the results. And then they, yeah. you know, they, they realize often later on that they ought to spend something sharpening themselves up because the drive is what makes the big difference when it comes to lap time in, in these historic cars or in any car. And, um, so I use like video V box or other data tools like that. And I do a demo lap in the car. So they, they have a reference lap basically and get the data and the video mm. And then um, coach them off that effectively. So you're not in the position where you're in the passenger seat next to them, which instantly adds yeah. you know 90 kilos to the weight of their car that they doesn't feel like it yeah. normally does, doesn't brake as well, doesn't accelerate as well. And you're not obviously trying to yell at them, you know, with hand gestures and <laughs> you know the odd swear word, trying to stop them doing something silly. So yeah, you can calmly have a chat with them over a cup of tea back in the garage and point out where they're going wrong and show them through the video. And it really 
you know, the results are staggering. Like, you know, there's very few days, you know, the first day when I'm with people that I don't, we don't knock five or 10 seconds off of someone's, someone's lap time, which yeah. is just mad when you think what they'd, you know, the, the half a tenth they gain by changing the dampers or, you know, this half a second they might gain by a new yeah. set of tires. So, you know, it's generally, it's a lot about vision, technique. Vision is key, really. You know, at the end of the day, the car goes where you're looking. So a lot of people don't, uh, don't get that right. But, and, and, you know, until you're out there and, have someone who can point this out to you it's not always that easy to to work that out yeah i found the the reference lap um i mean it's quite brutal at times because you you know you've <laughs> gone out and you've gone as fast as you think you can go and then they go out in exactly the same car on exactly the same day see all your excuses are out the window <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and they're yeah probably on slightly worse tires and they're like okay yeah 10 seconds interesting <laughs> but no, it's yeah. definitely well you know it's it is it is it is interesting. I mean, the, this sort of technology has been around, well, maybe 15 years now, probably, maybe maybe 20, but certainly mm. probably 15 years that sort of widespread use of sort of V-Box and probably only the last five or 10 in historics. You know, it's, it was very unheard of to see it when, you know, when I started out. And, um, you know, now there's a lot of drivers that, you know, they buy these historic cars, they pair up with a, a pro, you know, not necessarily a young pro, some some old guys that have been around for years and they're, they're now armed with the tools of, v-box and other data logging systems and then they they help bring them along with it because they yeah it's so much easier to find time and get good results through using this sort of technology to assist you and i think um you know you don't want to spoil the look of the car you know by having sort of gadgets all over it and you know there are rules in the different series you're not allowed live data acquisition and things like that which is what you'd have in in a modern gt car you know you've got pit to car telemetry at le mans you know they're watching everything you're doing in a modern car you're not allowed that in historics which is good you know i don't think you should be allowed that you know it is you are trying to be driving cars that you know marking the period that they they were from so i think that's good that they they haven't allowed sort of to step into mm. right well too much but yeah, as you say the reference lap is a very useful thing and the key is that people understand how to use that data and to go back out and make incremental steps because if you point out to somebody that you know they're breaking 96 meters too early that's a huge distance but when you're doing 150 miles an hour 96 meters is probably a quarter of a second. So if you tell them to think, yeah. oh, pre's break 100 meters later, they'll, if they actually tried to do that, they'd probably break 200 meters later <laughs> and they'd be straight in the gravel. Yeah. So you've got to be a bit cautious with how you do that. Um, I mean, Marco Attard, who I raced with in British GT in the, in the Z4 in 2013, mm. uh, he was phenomenal with the data, you know, very trusting. And if you just told him to do something, he'd go out instantly on the outlap. He'd do what you just told him to do, <laughs> just completely trusting in the data which was really, really good. So, you know, it meant we had, we had phenomenal results that year. And, but, um, Zanvoort, for example, where neither of us had been, there's a section out the back of the circuit where there's a really fast right, which, and there's, it's blind over a brow on the sand dunes. And, uh, in the Z4, which had so much error, that was, that was flat. And, yeah. you know, there's a lot of drag. So if you lift at 150 miles an hour in a car like that, it's like putting the brakes on. Yeah. So, you know, his little lift he was having, which, you know, to sort of 70% throttle, it's costing him a couple of seconds over that bridge. Yeah. So I just told him on the data, it is flat. And he looks at the video and watched it a couple of times and was like, okay. And on the outlap, he does it. And he just nice. finds that time straight away. <laughs> Whereas there's other people who kind of aren't trusting of that sort of technology and don't believe it, even though you've shown them it is. And, and yeah. they'll pound around all day doing the same thing because they don't, they don't take that leap of faith, which, which is kind of needed, I guess, when, you, when you're showing what the car can do. Yeah, I remember it was the first... It's the first day I'd gone to Silverstone with my radical testing, my SR3. 
and I guess it must have been cops. And the difference between the speed I was going around and uh, who was it? Ollie Hancock. He was like 20 miles an hour faster or something. Something like, or maybe 20 kilometers an hour faster at the apex. And I remember looking at that and be like, yeah, so no, that's, uh, uh, I'm not just doing that. <laughs> that. That seems absolutely bonkers. And then it was just started like, you know, you ch- I started learning these techniques for just chipping away at it. Don't yeah. just go out and go 40 miles an hour faster through a corner because someone said it. Because actually, maybe you can't. Like yeah. if, you, if, if your steering wheel, steering's not quite right and everything else is not quite right, you might fluff it and end up in a wall. Um, it's probably flat, probably flatter than SR3, is it? Or it's, almost. Or? It's, it depends on which way the wind's going. And it's it's now, it's it's basically flat in and then lift in the middle somewhere, depending on conditions. Yeah, no, which, that's mad. Yeah, they, they do take fight. some, uh, must take some getting used to. I, I've, I've driven an SR3 at Silverstone, actually, but it was a few years ago. But I was I was blown away by, you know, instantly you just, you feel like it's doing everything you want. It's only when you're really on it that, you know, you start getting the understeer and the slower speed yeah. starts. And initially on your outlap, you're like, well, this just does anything I want it to do. And you can't <laughs> yeah. even believe there's anything wrong with it ever. But it's like any of these things, you know, they feel so good. You jump in a GT3 car nowadays, you know, the first yeah. few laps out, the performance is so good and so easy, you know, but it's only that last second that, that yeah. you really have to be on it, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do, do most cars, reasonably general question, are most cars similar when you get towards the limit if you drive in a similar way? Or do you just, have you driven some cars that are just bonk, like they're just weird? I mean, well, well set up race car, you know, I haven't really had any front wheel drive experience, but a well driven, uh, sorry, well set up race car generally you know, has the same traits. You know, if you go in too fast, it'll generally understeer if you then lift immediately having gone in too fast you'll probably lose the rear yeah you know so those sorts of you know that's the sort of thing that you know not to do you know don't go up a rouge with loads of lock on because you're about the car's about to go light you know, those basic things that you just see people get wrong so yeah. often you know what you've kind of got that drilled into you is you know things not to do um so no they but they do basically all handle fairly you know similar similar traits i suppose you'd say albeit different speeds, different levels at which they break different away, tires, whatever, different yeah. angles they're happy at, happy sitting at. You know, there's some cars that are, are quite soft and you need to sort of turn in a bit early to get them to roll onto the outside tire and get them set up for the corner. Whereas a, a racing car, be it, you know, like a T70 or Lotus 15 or something mm. that's actually built as a racing car rather than a, a hotted up road car, effectively, yeah. um, they do every, they're much, much sharper at the front end, much more similar to your, to your Radical, albeit you know, very different in the, in the same way. Mm. You know, no error, really. Do you, do you ever play on a sim? Uh, yeah, I actually have a setup, which I got um, back in 2015, actually, prior to that first Le Mans I did with, with the mm. Corvette, just to get clued up on the circuit again in a GT car. Yeah. And yeah, it was, it was pretty useful. My internet where I was was so bad at the time that I don't actually use it for, for iRacing or R-Factor yeah. or anything like that. I've got sort of a remote login so I can go on and just test, basically. Um, yeah. But more recently, I've been using a uh, using GT Sport quite a lot, which is good yeah. just on a PlayStation. Which you know, anyone, most people have them, and you can you know you can get a pretty decent steering wheel and pedals, but not a huge investment. And uh, I've been using that quite a lot during lockdown, which has been which has been good fun, fun actually. Yeah, racing ah. against people I've raced against for real and, and friends, <laughs> and doing a sort of an online. There's a sort of group of us that race twice a week in a sort of historic league, and we've got you know we we race we're running in the cars that we we race so okay you know, we've, that's fun. we've done sort of 
an E-type race at Goodwood, a GT40 race yeah. at Spa, that's, that sort of stuff. So that's really good. And, and the, the tracks are so accurate now, you know, most of them are all laser scanned. So the, re- the level of realism is really, really good. Yeah. And the, the sort of, you know, the tire models is the thing that still isn't quite there. You know, mm. on, on GT Sport, you know, the general balance of cars is pretty reasonable. But the grip levels, you know, even if you choose a bad tire, are still a bit too high to reflect okay. historic yeah. lap times. You know, so like a Cobra or an E-Type round Goodwood is probably five seconds too fast on GT okay. Sport compared with real life. Um, you can't really make it slower. Like you, no, you, well, you, could take, you could add some weight and take some power out of it, but, yeah. you know, we're not that fast. We're all in the same not thing. That so it yeah. doesn't really matter, but uh, no, they are they are useful. And, of course, I tuned in at the weekend to some of the virtual mm. for our Le Mans, which looked, looked really interesting. You know, it was well uh, well sort of broadcast and... A lot of teams put a lot of effort in and had, had yeah, their full did. engineering support from the real teams to help get them through the race. And it was interesting to watch. And it was it was cool to see Nick Tandy win it, you know. So he's won the real 24-hour yeah. and the virtual with Porsche both times. So that was, that was really cool. I think it's cool seeing... I, I've watched a little bit of some of the, the races that have been recently. And for me, and I think a lot of people feel like this, like if there's names I've heard of, it adds a lot because I, I know that this person, whether it's Verstappen or whatever, is fast in real life. And therefore you've got like a marker. I know they have to learn sim racing and some of them do a lot more sim racing than the others, but it's like a marker for how quick the, the other people are. You know, yeah. your, your, your sim racers that no one's heard of who are unbelievably fast. Like once you've got some real names thrown in the mix... Yeah, and then you, you then appreciate like, how good they are. Yeah. You appreciate how good they are. How much do you think it translates to driving real cars? Let's say GT Sport. So I think a I'd lot say, of people will have I'd GT say Sport. certainly in the last few years, you know, it's getting closer and closer. You mm. know, I saw something on, on YouTube earlier, which was a which was two laps side by side. It was a an, an I race, sorry, an R Factor two, yeah, which has got a lot better than the early R Factors that I had to go on before, um, versus Le Mans RSR lap side by side. And, you know, you have to sort of do a double take for the first 30 seconds of video to work out which video is the real and which is, <laughs> and which is um, the sim. Yeah. You know, in terms of the sounds, the, the graphics, you know, the things you're going past, the scenery, the campsites, you know, and the way the car's responding to the inputs from the driver, you know, they are getting closer. You know, you still get, the you still get, you know, at the end of the day, you, you're not getting the full experience when you're driving the sim, even if you've got motion, which I don't yeah. like because it makes me sick, or even if you've got some of those things turned on, you're still basically relying only on your eyesight yeah. and you're not getting the motion and the feel that you have in a real car, which allows you to feel something before you see it. So you, yeah. you know, in a real car, you can feel the slide and you're already correcting it before you see the front of the car move. Yeah. So the guys that are on Sims and have only they, that, that one sense, which is, I guess the sound and their eyes yeah, and is phenomenally, phenomenally finely tuned, which is why often when you put them in real cars, they're so good because you know, when they suddenly get the other senses, it's, it's actually easy for them. And so that's, you know, something that uh, I think they're definitely getting a lot closer. And, you know, a lot of the sim guys that have come through, I mean, like Jan Mardenborough, who's one of the first winners of, you know, Luca yeah. Ordinez, they were, they were sort of the first winners in the first couple of years of the Nissan Academy. You know, he came and raced with us, against us in British GT mm. back in 2012, you know, without, with Alex Bunkham. And straight away, you know, they were challenging for race wins and fighting for the championship, you know, and, and he'd come straight from a simulator. So, well, in fact, not even a simulator, really. That was just GT Sport at home on his yeah. you know, Gran Turismo his at home on his, on, his, on his PlayStation. So, you know, without the fancy steering wheels and 
proper brake pedal setups that people have now got. You know, there's people spending, well, certainly upwards of thirty or forty thousand pounds people could yeah. spend on these simulator rigs, crazy. You know, which is mad. I mean, you, you know, you can get something very decent for four or five, but some yeah. of the figures that people are spending is is mad. And of course, uh, during lockdown, I think being in the simulator business has probably been a, a very good. It must have been like, the amount of the amount of races or people that were going to go and do some expensive racing that have previously not bought a sim. It's like, well, okay, well, if I I won't do a weekend of GT racing, I might as well get a sim. Yeah, no, I think that's certainly happened. So no, it's, it, it's been interesting to see. Yeah, it's definitely been interesting to see the development and how it's changed. And I've definitely noticed the difference of trying different kit. Like I've tried a few different things. I haven't tried massively up the range, but even just like five years ago, the general consumer stuff five years ago or 10 years ago to the general consumer stuff now is so much better. Yeah. Like, and you just feel, you feel so much more in the wheel. Yeah, no, that is but good. No, it's, you know, it's good but you, fun. But you still get, as I said, when you're on without that level of feel that you get from real life situation. Oh, yeah. You know, I'll find myself in a GT car on a simulator spinning, coming out of a hairpin at 30 miles an hour. Yeah, of course, yeah. you're so annoyed with yourself because you would never do that. Yeah, and, and of course, you're, you know you're blaming the sim, and you know, upset. <laughs> but you're, you're just like, well, don't be ridiculous. I would not have spun the car at 30 miles an hour. Yeah. I'd have felt it, and I'd have steered into it. But it could just be gone, you know, just like a switch. And you're facing yeah, the wrong yeah, way, yeah. and you're trying to reset, and you're in the gravel, and uh, you know that can be very, very frustrating. Yeah, and you have Good. to learn all these things. I was watching. Um, it was something that the sim racers do that just no one does in a real car is they like blip down the box like a madman. It's just like six to first, like obviously you can't do that in a normal road car. No, well, I think that, yeah, I guess they haven't got to worry about, uh, you know, an yeah. engine or gearbox bill if it goes wrong. But um, then, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, there are, there's some interesting things. I mean, you know, especially like some of the online sort of time trial shootout functions on, on, on GT Sport, you know, you'll see some of these lap, you know, you'll go and do a decent lap somewhere yeah. and you'll be, you know, 1800th in the world and you're nine seconds off someone you've never yeah. heard of. And you think, how on earth are they doing that? And you can actually watch the laps. You can go and access the lap they've done and yeah. you can play it. And when you watch it, they are doing some incredibly interesting lines and, and just, you know, just so much practice that they found, you know, how quick can you go through there and how wide can you go without getting the track cut penalty and without yeah. glancing that barrier and, you know, the time you put into it to find these bits where you can pick up tenths, halves, and you know, and even whole seconds through just laps and laps and laps and laps, which you know I haven't got time for. <laughs> it, is, it is very impressive, and I like how, like you said, you can watch these replays. So, yeah, you may not be able to get yourself ten seconds, and it's always it's always a crazy amount faster the fastest lap than like I've ever managed to get close to. But at least you can see. You can watch them do the lap and then you can try it and then you can have the ghost on. Whereas like if you're in real life and you're trying to learn a track, essentially you're just trying to get better knowledge of the track and how to drive the track most of the time and then get the best out of the car or whatever. Like that process in real life is so slow. Yeah. Versus doing it. If you can learn a bit how, you know, to get your lines, tweak your lines a little bit, you can do that on a PlayStation. You can hit reset. And you can follow someone or whatever. It's definitely well, that's an interesting where, learning where, tool. As I say, you know, the use of video and, and data logging, and, you know, being able to produce that reference lap, that's where that's helped shortcut that time massively. Yeah. You know, someone will be, you know, they'll, they'll do five years of racing in a certain class, getting frustrated 
you know, always saying, oh, that other bloke's doing this, he's doing that, he's got the wrong this, the wrong that, you know, or my team aren't so good, or, you know, what's happening? And at the end of the day, their car is fully capable of doing it, and they just need to be shown how, or if their car has got something wrong with it, with a setup, they might be driving around a problem for for years. You know, I've got in cars where, you you know, you can't believe how they drive. You know, there's an issue with brake bias, or there's a warp disc, or something that they just haven't picked up because they're not haven't been driving since they were yeah. a teenager and they, they don't know that there's a problem and the mechanics obviously don't drive the cars so they you know they do their best but they don't have that feedback because they're not behind the wheel you know they'll fire it up in the workshop and to them everything seems fine yeah so yeah that that helps save a lot of time you know for, for these guys that are, that are getting into it and want some coaching and you know it makes a huge difference to them I've worked with a lot of drivers over the years who've gone on to have a lot of success and it, it, you know, it does make a big difference. You know, think of any professional sport where people don't have a coach. Yeah. You know, there's so few, you know, the F1 drivers have all got coaches still, you know, it, you know, you can always have a different opinion or a different, you know, you can always be sharper at something, can't you? Yeah. And like you said, you don't, you don't know what you don't know. Like I know when I'm driving a car on track, most of the time I'm thinking about just sort of, not like just getting round, but you know, you're focusing on various things, whether it's getting your line better in this corner or breaking a bit later or whatever, all that sort of stuff. So when someone come and se- comes in and says, well, how does the right rear wheel feel? Do you think it needs a bit more toe out or whatever? You're like, I don't know. I'm not thinking about that. Whereas like put in someone like yourself, you can go round, you can do a very, very fast lap without, having to think about it too much and you're aware of all of these other things like oh the brake bias is a little bit too far forward or all of that stuff whereas it just goes straight over my head most of the time <laughs> well yeah i think it's just the more you've driven the more you've driven stuff and the more experience you get yeah you have i guess a, a capacity to you know require less of your concentration on the driving yeah you know they always said you know with, with someone like schumacher didn't they that he you know he didn't uh you know he was only using sort of 10% of his efforts to, to drive the car. The other 90 was thinking about the strategy and when he was going to pit yeah. and where he was going for dinner that night or whatever, you know, he's, uh, you know, the, the, the capacity that these drivers have, I mean, the F1 drivers nowadays with all the controls and the systems oh, they've got, mad. you know, I mean, the, the GTE cars have a, have a lot of buttons and a lot of functions on the wheel. You have to know what they all do, but touch wood, you don't have to use many of them. You know, yeah. during your stint, you might adjust the fuel map and you'll press the drink button You'll use your radio, the headlight flasher. And then if you have a code 60, you know, like a, a slow zone or something like you'd have at Le Mans, where there's like a, where they isolate certain levels, areas of the lap and make a, a basically a safe zone, like a miniature safety car, but only for yeah. a certain section of the lap. You have to go onto a different speed limiter because it's 70 clicks or 80 clicks, whatever it is in yeah, that yeah. zone versus the pit lane, which is slower. So you've only got certain things you know you have to do. And then you know what all the other buttons do if there's a problem. Yeah, yeah. you know what the other control buttons do and you've got spare ignition systems spare fuel pump systems and you have to learn what all that does in the event that something goes wrong you don't waste time asking your engineer on the radio what to do yeah but generally speaking yeah you'll use three of the 30 buttons on the wheel yeah you're not scrolling through screens whilst heavily loaded up through a corner just adjusting the bias this way and the suspension yeah i mean they change bias yeah, around something like monaco they change brake bias diff settings fuel map you know yeah. like the level of Breaking, you know, the regen braking through the rear wheels, front wheel. I mean, it is inc- it's incredible. So yeah, those, those drivers now have got, um, you know, although, you know, physically in terms of, you know, the controls are all light, so to speak, but they've still got huge loads on them, you know, massive, especially under braking. 
you know, the, the grip the cars have got now with those wings and the tyres. You know, they've got huge physical forces on themselves, plus the mental for you know, the mental load of dealing with all those controls. But it is yeah. all they do. So they've got, you know, that's the car they drive for that whole year, and they don't drive anything else nowadays. So they haven't got to learn more than one car. So uh, yeah. When you were when you were doing a lot of GT racing, did you do things like train your neck, or it was just you spent enough time in the car so it was okay? Yeah, we do a bit. I mean, you know, you'd always feel you know, the first test days, which you know, if it was something like Blanc Pan, <laughs> it would be the early early test days. You know, you would be you'd probably do a day or two in the UK, and then you'd be at Paul Ricard for the balance of performance, which would normally be in March. Mm. Yeah, you'd all, you know, you'd be a bit stiff on the first day, but otherwise, you know, you're in the car so often that actually. You know, it's okay. It's and the control power, inputs yeah. are light. You know, you've got power steering. You know, the, the legs are the things that take the big hit, really, which is just the brake pressure. Yeah. Um, yeah, and core, really, from the cornering. You know, you've got to have a strong core, really. If that's weak, then you just, your back will hurt, and then you'll be in agony after a, after a stint. And you do a lot, you know, you, in the endurance races, you are in these cars for a, for a long time. You know, um, Le Mans, even more so in GTE, because there's only three drivers over 24 hours, whereas... Uh, a spa 24 hour for example and there's four drivers in the car yeah and it doesn't sound like a huge difference but you know it is six hours of of the driving that you have to share between the other three so you know you're in the car for a while the triple stint you know at Le Mans is something that you do Uh, you wouldn't normally do that in in Blanc Pan because it's the four drivers you normally only do a double which would be sort of just under two hours Mm. or maybe just over if if the safety car you can you can make the fuel go a bit longer that is a a long time in a yeah, no, at Le Mans, you'd be just under three hours in a GTE car, which uh, even though you've got air conditioning uh, in that there's a cockpit regulation, the temperature of the cockpit can't get above 45 degrees, I think it is, which is pretty warm anyway. It's pretty toasty. Um, but there's, a, there's a sensor which, the, which links up to the ACO, and, and if your car exceeds that cockpit temperature, they have to they send you a message on the race control screen, and the car has to be brought in for repairs, and you have to fix the air conditioning system, oh, okay. oh, which is mad. Enough. It's good yeah. in that you don't get the problems you had in GT1 where you were getting 65 degrees cockpit temp, which was just boiling yeah. the drivers. Um, which is, yeah, that's you know, crazy. Three, you know, you still sweat a decent amount in a three-hour stint at 45 degrees. I mean, it's that's a pretty pretty decent workout. Yeah, I feel for the AM drivers in this situation. If you're if you're a pro driver, invariably, you're probably young-ish and you should be quite fit because you are a pro driver. But if you're just an AM I know a lot of them are quite good, but you probably just have like, you know, you run your company most of the time and do a bit of racing a couple of times a year. You're not quite in the sharpest of... I mean, I think that's where a lot of the attitude of the, of the AM, you know, the bronze graded driver, you know, the gentleman driver in Mm. things like GT and Blanc Pan, that's what what the attitude of that towards how seriously they take it has changed a lot in the last few years. Okay. There's a good series. I think it's called the gentleman driver, which was on, it was either on Amazon or Netflix. Yes, that was really good. Really, really good. And it looked into sort of some of the fastest gent driver in the mm. world, um, in GTE uh, and in America as well, I think, in, in LMP. And again, that showed you how seriously they take it. Yeah, they are, you know, in the office of a major company, you know, nine to five, Monday to Friday, except for when they go away racing on a Wednesday night or a Thursday. But, um, you know, they take it very, very seriously. You know, they've got personal trainers and they've got driver coaches yeah. and they've got physios at the track and they – they take it seriously because at the end of the day, you, you know, you'd be kicking yourself if, if you let the team down because you were tired late on in the yeah. stint and made a mistake. And you know, those things can happen. And as soon as you get fatigued, then you're more likely to make to make a mistake. Yeah, and if you're in a LMP2 car, 
and you're, you're, you're spending whatever a million is a weekend or something, um, you don't want to have a crash. That's going to suck big time. Yeah. And I, and I think, yeah. And I think not just from a personal point of view for those drivers, they, you know, they, they very much like the team atmosphere of it. You know, they'd be working with at least two yeah. other drivers who the whole weekend means a lot to them as well. And the whole team and everything around it. And if, if you make a mistake and it lets everyone down, you know, they, they'd feel equally bad about it. So yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, I think that they're, that's become a lot. I think the role of that, that gent driver in that type of racing, not just for the funding they bring, you know, those cars would not be on the grid without them, you know, and you, mm. you sometimes get it where you, you know, I think a few years ago, some of the pro drivers in an LMP car were sort of being quite dismissive of, of the gent drivers, you know, through accidents that happened in traffic and tripping yeah. over them effectively. At the end of the day, they've got to realize that you know, if those guys weren't there buying their RSRs to race in the GT class, yeah. you wouldn't be a pro in the 919 or the 918 hybrid because Porsche wouldn't be at Le Mans without the yeah. sale of those cars. So they got quite a, a, a strict, you know, shout down, I think from the, from the powers that be over that attitude they had, because at the end of the day, going back to the start of endurance racing, it's been gentlemen drivers that have bought cars and gone and raced them. Yeah. And the sports got more and more professional, but at the end of the day, without, you know, the 12 or 14 GT AM cars on the grid at Le Mans every year, there wouldn't be yeah. a pro factory lineup because the cars wouldn't be there because there'd be no need to develop them because they're not going to sell any. So yeah, you know, that role of those drivers is, is I think somewhat underappreciated sometimes because without yeah. them, that wouldn't be happening. Yeah. And all the pro drivers that get to drive because there's an arm that's yeah, paying exactly. for it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, all of the coaching I do in historics and modern that I've done has been because I've either been driving alongside the arm or helping them because they're going to be driving yeah. their cars with others, you know, throughout, throughout the season. So, um, you know, I've worked with some, some really good drivers over the years and, and brought them up to a level and they've had, great results it's actually very rewarding you know mm. i don't have children yeah you know <laughs> but it's the sort of thing that you, you actually get you know a real sense of pride when someone that you've worked with does well and i guess yeah. that's the sort of thing you'd get if your kid did well at football or you know, yeah 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 won a swimming race or whatever so you know that's that's something that i've enjoyed a lot you know you get a lot of fit you know it's not just driving when you're when you're driving yourself you know the result you get working with another driver is is a very rewarding feeling as well you always sort of wonder that when you're younger, you see older people coaching or, you know, and they get a lot of enjoyment out of the people, like you said, they've coached doing well. And when you're younger, like, yeah, but don't you just wish you were doing it? Whereas you start to see these things. I've had a few things that, you know, where you teach someone how to do something, they get better at it. And then you're like, oh yeah, like, they're doing good. Yeah. It's a good feeling. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I'm fortunate in that, you know, I'm, you know, not by sort of F1 or single seater standards, you know, I'm no spring chicken by those sorts of, uh, you know, measures, but, um, mm. you know, I'm, I'm young in the historic world. I'm still one of the young, young, yeah. quick guys out there. And, you know, I've managed to meet some great people over the years and, you know, I've driven cars at all sorts of eras and, and, uh, you know, again, both types of spectrum, you know, it's been great racing in modern GT and great racing in historics and being able to sort of dovetail the two sort of parallel careers almost has been, mm. it's been really, really cool. You know, you have a lot more respect for, the cars you're driving and also the history of the sport as well, having sort of grown up or, you know, having driven cars that had success at Le Mans back yeah. in the day and then, and then to race it's, it's kind of replacement at Le Mans yeah, nowadays really cool. is very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Right. Well, I normally wrap these up with five questions. Are you ready? Okay. Fire away. Do you have a most memorable driving trip or journey? Well, that's a tricky one. So that'd be on the road. It, it can be either. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think 
I've done some great trips across Europe over the years. You know, I try and tie in a trip back from a foreign race, you know, with a nice driving trip. I mm. think um, a great trip actually was probably two or three years ago in Portugal with a friend. We took um, a couple of cars up through like, the Douro region, you know, through all the vineyards and some of the roads mm. down there in Portugal are so underrated you know, no one's on them, which is a good thing. So we don't right. want to publicize it too much. Otherwise <laughs> they'll get too busy. But, um, that was great. Yeah. A friend was in a three, five, five and I was in a GT three RS and on those roads, you know, they were phenomenal and no one on them, you know, and brand new tarmac, which, yeah, uh, you nice. know, I think is, is hopefully still in that condition. But that was a great trip. You know, so I think, uh, that's probably one of my more memorable trips yeah, yeah. You know, in recent years. Although, uh, as a kid growing up, we, we, we used to go across Europe, you know, uh, I remember my, my, I've got a brother and a sister and we went to Switzerland in like the back of an old Bentley in the back seat, you know, with flying goggles and helmets and mm. stuff. And oh, you sort awesome. of remember that because, you know, it was cold yeah. and windy and we got rained on and, you know, dad refused to put the roof up. You sort of yeah. remember those sorts of trips, you know, growing up. But a lot of my memories to be, you know, are about racing because the experience you get and the buzz you get from racing kind of dwarfs any, any yeah. road-based trip you could have. So like, uh, <laughs> I've got much more memories sort of on track than I have on the road, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Most, most, okay. Most notable racing moment. Uh, probably it's, it'd be very easy to say Le Mans cause it's kind of fresh in my mind. Um, cause it wasn't that long ago, but, uh, probably spa, um, 24 hours in 2014 and 2015, uh, with the Akiricos Z4 that, um, mm. that we, we would, we sort of ran the whole program. Barber Motorsport ran the car for us and myself, um, Joe Twyman, Andrew Smith and Alison McCaig, as a group, we put the whole program together and brought all the sponsorship together and got all the backers. And it was an incredible program we did from 2012 to 2011, actually to 2015. And during that period, we had some really, really good success. You know, we had a British GT teams championship, British GT drivers championship. We had third in block pan endurance, you know, which is a very, very competitive series. Mm. And in 2014 and 15, we had back-to-back Spa 24-hour podiums um, nice. in the top seven overall, uh, which was amazing. You know, I mean, uh, in, in 2014, it was myself, Alistair, Andrew, and Alexander Sims, who's really quick BMW factory driver. He now drives yeah. for them in Formula E. You know, we were seventh overall and second in Pro-Am. You know, fantastic result. Mm. You know, we were in front of you know, the Audi crew that won Le Mans that year, you know, it was, it was amazing. Yeah. And uh, so that's probably one of my, one of my best memories I'd say, because for GT cars, the Spa 24 hours is the best race because it's just, it's a whole grid of GT3 cars. Yeah. 80 of them around that track. There's no more sun straight. There's no time to have a rest. You know, it is very, very intense. And yeah, there's four of you driving the car, but um, you know, that's, that's probably one of our greatest achievements as well because we were so involved with putting that program together Mm. And without all the work we'd all put in to make that program happen, you know, we wouldn't have done it. So yeah, yeah, that's probably one of my best racing memories. I think. Well, that's 2015 trophy actually. That's ah, that's, that's nice. far, so that's for third in pro am in 15 at at, uh, at the same race. So to do that result again the following year was yeah, that's was awesome. amazing. That's cool. Right, next question: five car garage, unlimited value. You can have race cars and road cars. Yeah, that is a tricky one, isn't it? Um, as long as there's not a daily in there. There is, you've got, it's got to fit into your life. So you, you've got to drive around in something. Yeah. Well, I suppose if we mix some race cars into it, I suppose like the Cobra, you know, so eligible, yeah. so many things it can do, so history, you know, you know, that'd be something we'd always like to try and hang on to. So I'd say that probably have to go in a five car garage. Yeah. Um, 
two liter Porsche um, because yeah. there's so much you can do with them. They're so amazing, you know. So pre sixty six short wheelbase nine eleven because of all the things you can do with it, and you can drive it on the road. Yeah, uh, you know they are an awesome thing. McLaren F one just because I've never driven one. I've watched them, GTR? I've seen the GTR. Yeah, GTR. I think um, having seen them race at Le Mans and how well they did in ninety five, I think that would have to be in the lineup. Yeah. Um, otherwise, three four fives. I love Ferrari three four five. They're just a really cool car. I think yeah. nowadays with all these cars getting too fast, I think it's nice to have something that you can you can make a great noise and you can actually drive it to a certain level of its full capacity yeah. without without being too silly. Uh, you know, they're they're a great thing. There's a lot uh, to be said for that. Yeah, like, modern it's just too fast. <laughs> super modern stuff is it's it's an awesome awesome thing to be that fast, but you just can't use it. Yeah, you can't use it on the road. I mean, yeah, I suppose I guess nowadays where a lot of these people are going with this sort of hypercar ownership is, I guess hopefully some of them. Hopefully they're not all just in Knightsbridge. Hopefully some of them are are going out and actually being used properly, you know, on tracks, which is where you're getting I, you know, this McLaren program yeah. and, you know, this Ferrari Clienti thing. I think hopefully a lot of people are actually using their cars properly in it, that way with a, with a pro next to them and properly using these cars because, uh, yeah. you know, you can't use seven, eight, 900 horsepower on the road. I mean, it's just silly. <laughs> no. I think if, if I had unlimited, unlimited funds, I used to sort of look at them and go, that looks a bit crap. But like the the Ferrari programs, like an FXXK or something like that, I would, or, you know, Aston Martin Valkyrie, but the race car version, I'd totally have one of them and just like run it at the weekend. If, if I had unlimited funds, because it's like a naturally aspirated V12, 900 horsepower, tons of downforce, slicks, it's probably quite good fun to drive. Yeah, I know that. That's certainly, that's pretty appealing. You know, the thing about that though, the thing you've got to, you know, if you, if you, the thing, you, the only reason you'd be disappointed when you did something like that is if, you know, you go and spend whatever you spend on that type of <laughs> yeah. car and someone turns up in an eight year old GT3 car on a set of slicks <laughs> and then it does the same lap time. Yeah. So, and then, and then someone turns up in a radical yeah, with, goes quicker for than like that. a tenth of the price and still faster. Yeah. So, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot to be said for, you know, it, that sort of an, another option for somebody looking to do that sort of, you know, to drive a cool car around a track for track yeah, use only. GT. Yeah. You could, yeah, you can buy a, you know, a Z4, for example, you could buy a G3 Z4 for probably 130, 140 grand currently. And, you know, they're phenomenally fast. You know, they're sub yeah. two minutes, 20 around spa, you know, two minutes around the Grand Prix circus at, at Silverstone, you know, potentially a lot of value for the lap time you can do in them. Yeah. Uh, so there I we go. Z4 GT3 car. That's got to be one of them as well. Yeah, because of my so memories one more slot. in that car. So that'll either be four or five. Slot. I didn't do a road car yet. I didn't you do a, daily. a road car. You, you <laughs> daily. You've got a nine eleven. Actually, quite a few of these are roadable. Yeah, yeah. Maybe the you GTR would be like that. Be F one GTR as a daily would probably be a bit uh, <laughs> a bit tricky climbing across into that central yeah. seat. But um, yeah, if I did do five cars, then I think we did. Yeah, the GTR, the nine eleven, Cobra. Three five five and the Z four. There you go. Five. There you go. Five done. Right. If you could only drive one car for the rest of your life, what would it be? It doesn't have to be from those five. No. And you're allowed like a five hundred pound thing on the side to take stuff to the tip or whatever. I mean, I'd, I was. It would be some type of nine eleven. Mm-hmm. Um, difficult to. to sp- pinpoint it but it you know if it was going to it'd probably be something like 
a 70s RS of some sort, an RS or an RSR, something that, you know, you could go and race if you wanted to, but it's equally at home on the road. You know, yeah. The, the, the 65 911 again would be, could be that one of those options. But, you know, if we're, talk, if we're talking about the alternate, you probably want something with a bit more power than that. You know, maybe so yeah. it'd be a bit quicker on track. So, yeah, maybe like a 74 RS or something would be pretty awesome. Mm. Yeah, that's that's quite a good option because it does it does that thing that it's in that era where you can have a road car that is a road car, but it's also a race car. Yeah, and you can do both. You, you can do yeah yeah yeah. Take that car for example. You could use it on the road. You could go and do tour auto with it. You could go and use it at Classic Le Mans. You could race it in Masters. You know, there, there's just so much you could do with it. Yeah. Um, again, you can do that same with a '65 car. You could do the same, but. You're obviously lapping a lump, a lump quicker with a. There's a lot more technology in a in a mid 70s car than there is in the mid 60s. So yeah, and a very very cool thing, and they look awesome. Wide bodywork, wing on the back, mm. very cool. Yeah, very cool. What's the most undervalued car at the moment? Do you think? Uh, well, I, definitely not 65 911s because they're expensive now. <laughs> but you know, when they were 50 grand, they definitely were uh, undervalued given what you could when do. When were with they 50 grand? Uh, How long ago? A while ago now, but um, well, maybe seven, eight years ago. Okay, so, uh, so not, not that long not ago. That long ago yeah. Um, yeah, you know that would be like a, a road car for that sort of money. And then if you wanted to race it, you you know you kind of you, know, you could choose how much you want to spend on it, basically. But yeah. um, undervalued cars, difficult to say. Really, are we talking race cars or road cars or anything? Your pick. Well, I certainly think those. 2010 2015 gt3 cars are still pretty cheap mm. given what you can do with them i mean a lot of the series don't allow gt3 cars yet which is probably a good thing because of how quick they are you know relatively to the yeah. to they could be racing against you know if you just bought a le mans winning 458 and a bloke turns up in a two-year-old gt3 car and you know annihilates you and you've paid a million quid because your car won le mans or something you yeah that would probably be, uh, you know, so I think they're probably undervalued. But then again, that's always been the way, you know, when a car's finished its racing life, you know, they were worthless. You know, yeah. The next model came out and then you couldn't give them away. You know, GTOs in the 60s, you know, when, when the LM came out, the GTOs, you couldn't give them away. You know, people yeah. were, people would crush them rather than ship them back from America because <laughs> they didn't want to pay the freight. It's mad. So we're in a different world now, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> You'd feel bad if you'd crushed a GTO. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think you would. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Last question. Most interesting car to you right now? What are you googling? What are you looking up? It's an interesting one. That I'm quite a Porsche fan. You know, mm-hmm. I do like Porsches. I'd be interested to have a go in the the Taken. You know, I've not. Oh yeah. I've driven some electric cars on the road. I haven't driven a Porsche electric car on the road, so I'll be interested to see their take on it. I think, mm-hmm. you know, there's still, the world isn't quite ready for them yet. I don't think in terms, well, definitely not in terms of the infrastructure. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if all you do is local journeys, you know, and your daily mileage is say less than 200 miles and you can charge at home because you've got access to a PowerPoint or a driveway, you know, with yeah. your put a fast charger, then I think, okay, they work, they make sense now, but as a replacement to the combustion engine for other people, it just doesn't really work yet. So I'll be interested to see how, you know, what happens over the next five, 10 years in terms of yeah. an option for somebody, you know, at the moment, if you go to an airport because you think 
it's great. I'll charge my i3 up. When I come back from my trip, it'll still be in the charging bay and it'll be fully charged. You know, if you get to the airport and that one charging bay is in use, that <laughs> whole plan's out the window. And when you fly back in at 10 o'clock on a Sunday night, you can't get home. Yeah. So that isn't really acceptable yet. You could leave a little solar pack charger in your windscreen. Well, you could, yeah, <laughs> be parked outside. Yeah. But yeah, no, I think, right. I think um, yeah, that taken is quite an interesting thing. You know, I'd, I'd like to try it, but, you know, my passion really is with the older cars, I'd say, because, mm. you know, they give you an experience that means you get a load of enjoyment out of them without having to go too fast. Yeah. You know, as we were saying, touching on these modern cars, you know, they are phenomenal, but they're so fast and they're just too fast for the road. So you don't get enjoyment that you should get you know you you squeeze the throttle in these modern 600 plus horsepower supercars pull a couple of gears and you're just you're going far too quickly already so i think um, a car that balances so i think sort of cayman level of performance is kind of all you need for the road really i think i think the gearing's a bit long on them apparently but i need to yeah uh, the modern ones it's annoyingly long but you can adjust that yeah, I agree. Like, especially in modern tires. Modern tires on a modern supercar that's got big fat rims on it. Like, you've just got endless amounts of grip. Yeah, too much grip. So to you've got to be taking a lot of liberties to sort of feel it moving. Yeah, you've got to be in the wet, all. and you don't want to experience those sorts yeah. of cars on a road moving in the wet. So you've got to be on track. And even if you're on track, do you want to be, you know, yeah. massively out of shape and in a very expensive supercar on a circuit? Probably Scratch not. all your carbon in the gravel. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. I hope uh, hope people learn a few things about old cars and you know <laughs> old cars what, it's, and like in, what it's like in the racing world. But uh, yeah, no, it's been a pleasure. Thanks. Yeah, it's been good to chat. Sweet. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.